Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have John Stewart. John works the four-wheel drive industry from pretty much the land use side. We will get into all of that with his history in four-wheel drive and off-road and uh, find out more about John than he probably really wants everybody to know, but that's what we do here. So, John, thank you so much for for spending some time and uh, and talking about yourself with us. Well, Rich, thank you for the invite, and I uh, appreciate uh getting the working and getting the message out and you know, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and it's good information. Well, excellent. Okay. So let's uh let's start off with the the easiest and basic question. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Boise, Idaho and spent up through high school and starting college in in Idaho, joined the Navy and basically left Idaho almost 50, over 50 years ago, and really haven't lived there since. But I, I, I spent a couple of years in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, well, like I said, I was, I was born in Boise, still have uh, a brother in over in Bruno and a few other cousins uh, in the Boise area. And I graduated out of, in high school uh, out of Pocatello. I lived all over the state. We moved around quite a bit as a kid. And I got to see a lot of the state. Uh, it's a great area. Uh, in fact, I got out into the deserts and the mountains and that there before four-wheel drive was popular. All right. So let's talk about those early years. Um, Boise was a lot smaller if uh, if you left there about 50 years ago. Yes, it was. It's uh, the area around Boise, uh, well, it's back through there. What was it last fall? And I could not believe the amount of growth in the region. Uh, it's a far cry from what it was when I was a kid uh, growing up in that area. Uh, and you know, we'd go up to Stanley Basin. We would have uh, 
um, run of the areas and places and you go that uh, then as when Smiley Creek and some other place up in the headwaters of Salmon River and you go up there now and it's they're closed off either wilderness areas or uh, you know protected areas no fishing no getting near the streams you know it's it's sad to see the changes that have occurred yeah and that that part of the state is uh i believe the only part that uh that votes blue in the that ida or ada county in the whole state um i lived in uh in blackfoot for a couple of years before um shelly and i decided to take we rock full time on the road and do dirt yeah. ride and all that kind of stuff and it was a nice place. Um, the winters were way too cold for me. <laughs> when I was a kid, cold winters didn't matter. But as I get older, cold winters matter. <laughs> oh, I I hear you, and I feel every bit of the cold temperatures as they come rolling around. Uh, and uh, where I live now, it, it, you can't get down into teens. And I said, ah, that's cold enough for me. Right. And uh, the teens is still a lot better than what Idaho can get. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember uh, days, some winters that uh, it would be going uh, 30 below and, and it'd get up to zero and uh, we'd be out running around in short sleeves saying, hey, it's a bright sunny day, the sun's out, it's a great day. Yep. So growing up back then, you know, that, that whole area was, was pretty rural unless you were like downtown. What right. did you... Uh, was school close enough for you to walk or ride a bike or, you know, did you have to bus or what, what was the whole thing? Or were you guys riding the horses? No, we weren't <laughs> into horses. I was, uh, <laughs> we mostly lived uh, pretty much in the uh, suburbs, but, uh, uh, up till I see up until, uh, high school, I was always within walking distance of school. And once I hit high school, then uh, we were living just almost just just under two miles from the high school, and their uh, uh, distance radius for the bus service, I believe, was about a mile and a half. So, you know, in, in high school, it started being the bus rides to and from school. Okay, and school was a lot different for me back in. You know, I graduated high school in '76. And it's a lot different now than it was then. And you preceded me by a couple of years. So what was, what was school like? What, what kind of classes did, was it just core? Well, we, you had your core classes that you had to take, you know, your, uh, you had a certain number of, you know, credits of science plus English and math that uh, everybody had to take, then uh, you would get one or two electives uh, classes per year, maybe, or maybe it was three. But anyway, uh, you, know, you you had the core classes, uh, the basic reading, writing, arithmetic type thing. And, uh, you know, the science courses were required, uh, you know, biology, chemistry. Let's see. Yeah, that, that was my first introduction into physics. In a senior, I had a physics uh, you know, a physics class, but, uh, you know, the standard, uh, standard go rounds of, uh, algebra, a couple of years of algebra, the geometry, uh, and then advanced math classes, uh, and, you know, all of your, 
all of your uh, standard English classes, uh, and they had, uh, you know, other electives, I recall, were some business, uh, you know, home economics. Uh, oh, God, that was long ago. I can barely remember what was going on there. <laughs> I get it. Did you have yeah, any I, I, shop I, classes? Oh, yeah, we had shop. Uh, we had, uh, in, in fact, I got into architectural mechanical drawing uh, as a sophomore in high school. And uh, we had a woodworking shop classes, and there was also the you know auto auto shop classes, and the FFA Future Farmers of America had a uh, a series of classes for those that wanted uh, wanted to get into more of the agri- agricultural and shop type uh, basis for the mechanics. Okay, and uh, you said you went uh, from high school. You went. In- I. Go ahead. Yeah, I uh, I went from high school, uh, stepped out of high school, and uh, right on into college up at Idaho State University for about a year and a half. And I got uh, well, college and I did not agree because I didn't have to study to uh, maintain my high average in high school and graduate, you know, with an A uh, A student, but. College is a lot different environment, and there you have uh, you have to put uh, put forth an effort to it. And I just wasn't. I got tired of the the school and the uh, deal, and dropped out of college and joined the Navy and visited the world. In the Navy, okay. What did what did you do in the Navy? <laughs> well, you know, throughout high school, I picked up a knack for uh, an interest in electronics. Okay. And I uh, ended up, uh, when I joined the Navy, went through all the aptitude tests, and uh, they got me into an electronics-based uh, setup. And uh, I was, uh, actually, my grading or rating was an electronics warfare technician by the time I uh, got out of the Navy. Spent nine years in it, but... Uh, I was always involved in electronics and, uh, um, you know, technical aspects of what was going on. Uh, my career duties, you know, I spent almost five years uh, on ships imported out of uh, Yokosuka, Japan. Uh, so I saw a lot of things from up uh, just northern tips of the islands of uh, Japan all the way down south of the equator wow and uh what was what was life like on a ship (laughs) life on a ship man that is something that uh you're on a strict regime of uh going from uh watch watch you know duty watch or station watches and uh then during the daytime there's always uh Standard working details, you're either painting or repairing or something going on. You're never busy. Uh, and, you know, the chow lines are there. You're up, you're fed well. And I was on the old tin can, so life was a lot different for them uh, you know, at, at that time because you're crowded into bunks, you're uh, birthing spaces, uh, you didn't have a lot of room. Um, everything, you know, the ships made their own fire, you know, own, own water through, uh, evaporating systems, uh, to make their own fresh water. And 
And there were many times where you would be limited on uh, the amount uh, of uh, water times that you could shower you know, with the, <laughs> because of uh, problems with the evaporators or uh, inability to really uh, uh, produce enough water to keep everything going. But uh, we learned how to adapt, and uh, everybody had a certain amount of camaraderie that uh, we always – Always had a good time. Met a lot of good people on the, the ships and uh, a lot of good memories from that time. Okay. And then you said you spent nine years in the military or in the Navy, um, which is, of course, the military. <laughs> that was dumb. Yeah. Um, so uh, what what did you do after that time? Well, it's uh, my nine years in the Navy. Uh, I was uh, finishing up uh you know, shore duty in San Diego, and I got uh, tabbed to work on a uh, electronics warfare training program and uh, developing training aids for uh, you know ray training. Okay. Well, about the time I was uh, ready to re-enlist, so they kept wanting me, pushing me to re-enlist and say, "Yeah, you passed the chief's test. You'll be a, you'll be a chief. You'll be in a great spot." And they said, "But you've got to go back overseas." I said, "No, no way." You know, I was married with two kids, and there was no way I was going to leave San Diego. And they wouldn't even let me stay in San Diego. So I, I got out, and I got out of the Navy. And about two months later, I was back working for the Navy, doing what I did when I was in the Navy. Probably at a higher rate. Uh, a little bit more pay. Yeah. And I uh, I, I spent the next several years uh, working in uh, with the training age program uh, with a uh, let's see, Naval Education Training Support Center out of San Diego and left that place and moved over to, because uh, I, I, by then I had uh, advanced to a point. I was the uh, the IT department manager for that, that small Navy activity. Then uh, then I had a chance to uh, move over to get a you know pay raise and uh, move over to a different activity where I became an IT security manager for a uh, larger Navy activity in San Diego. Okay. So I you know yeah I've been involved in the computers and IT security. Uh, let's see, thirty, forty, almost forty years now. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. So uh, is that what you're, have you retired from regular work or consulting work or are you? I, yes, I have, I have retired from uh, any kind of uh, paid consulting work. I mean, you know, you, know you, you graduated 76, I graduated 10 years before you. Okay. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here at the point where, uh, I had a chance for a lifestyle change and the way things were going in California with my uh, consulting with the California four wheel drive association and California's uh, laws about uh, uh, everything, everything. <laughs> uh, and it became a question as whether they could afford to have consultants and be forced or forced to bring them on as employees. Well, I knew they could not have, they could not afford uh, to bring on any employees, you know, with all the attendant uh, uh, costs for an employee. Right. And that all happened at a time when uh, my current wife and I, we had a chance to uh, 
invest in some land here in Middle Tennessee for her son and daughter-in-law. And they're in the process now of building a wedding venue in Tennessee. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Oh. And what, what, what you say, Middle Tennessee, like Crossville? Middle or? Tennessee. No, about uh, 50, 60 miles south of Nashville. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we ended up with 28, almost 29 acres of land, raw land out here. There was, there was not a road into the place when we started. Now we've got almost uh, two miles of road you know, around here. We just, uh, see, wife and I have a house on the property. Uh, uh, stepson and daughter-in-law have a house here. And then the nice big shop. And the wedding venue is uh, the foundation's laid for it, and we're trying to get the uh, funding together and everything together to uh, begin a concrete pour for the slab and uh, get the building erected. Excellent. That's cool. I like that. So let's talk about those uh, those years that I guess was you were still doing the computer consulting and all that, but you were you got involved in, in off-road. Um, did that happen before the military going into the Navy, or did that happen while you were in San Diego? Well, I always developed a love for the hunting and fishing and uh, camping when I was a kid growing up in Idaho. And, right. And I've you know, been getting back to Idaho on a periodic basis over the years, and and keep seeing these things where wilderness signs keep popping up and, uh, you know, wilderness study areas and, you know, all this was happening and places were being closed off. Places where I used to go hunting and fishing as a kid were now being closed off. So then I came a time in the, uh, what was it, late eighties when, uh, started looking around and seeing more in California where the, Desert Protection Act uh, was coming up and in play, and I started saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, you close these areas off, and we got a lot of problems. That there's no place to go. And so I started getting involved in the uh, late 80s into what was going on and learning a lot about, about it uh, and seeing that. Uh, as off-roaders and with the recreation community in general, whether you're an off-roader or mountain bike or fishermen or hunters, uh, you're, you know, we were all stuck at a point, point or at a point where places were just being closed off and uh, continuing those activities was uh, becoming very difficult. So like I said, I got involved in that uh, and soon joined Cal 4 Wheel and the Blue Ribbon Coalition, some other places that just to help support these organizations. And all this was time when I was still working for a living. And finally, we came to a point where I was able to retire from a daytime job and took on, uh, you know, land use issues on a full time basis. And that's when I you know, spent 17 and a half. Yeah, a little over 17 years representing Cal Four Wheel and Four Wheel Drive interests in California. So. And a lot of was a lot of that in in meetings, um, in uh, courtrooms, things like that. Uh, spent a, spent a few times, a few hours in courtroom sessions, listening to what was going on, and 
but uh, many hours in uh, meetings, uh, group meetings or small meetings with uh, the Bureau of Land Management uh, or the Forest Service or the Fish and Wildlife Service. And in uh, in meetings anywhere, you know, uh, all throughout California, but most of us from Sacramento South and a number of times up into Las Vegas, several times over to Phoenix, Flagstaff area, and even over into Albuquerque and uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico on a couple of times. And even as far as El Paso, Texas, all with issues dealing with California OHV and uh, the water issues that are prevalent within the state. So, And how did you find the agencies – were they were they receptive to to motorized recreation or I should say anything besides pedestrian um, recreation meaning you know bicycles horses that kind of stuff what were they how receptive were they when I first started in that I found the agencies were not very receptive because a lot of ways they did not understand what was going on. There were a few exceptions, like uh, within uh, the um, Sierra National Forest. There's a couple of groups in the clubs from Cal Four Wheel and that that had, had built a lot of good personal relationships with the Forest Service up in that area. And they had a lot of good things going and still have a lot of good things going even with a lot of the problems that uh, management problems have cropped up in that area in recent years. Uh, and this was back in the time when uh, you know, the Rubicon Trail, the crown jewel of everything was being uh, looked at with a lot of scrutiny. And there was a, some bad feelings there with some of the initial, uh, the Forest Service uh, and uh, recreationists interaction uh <laughs> yeah, but, you're not telling me anything uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i remember being on a, on a lot of conversations with uh with a number of people and they uh they finally got their act together they've got the rubicon trail foundation and the friends of rubicon spun up and going and they've got the county behind them and backing them so They've got some good, you know, they have developed some good working relationships. But it's one of those things where, you know, 15, 20 years ago, those good relationships and uh, and those interactions were not there. And that's one thing I've always encouraged the local groups to do is sit down with the local uh, uh, ranger or uh, LEO or whoever is uh, managing your lands in the areas where you are interested in and see what their concerns are and let and let them know and explain what what you want to do and how you can help them you know buy them a cup of coffee buy them a beer you know have get to know them right i always thought that that the best way to influence the decisions or the mindset of those federal employees was through the local county city business leaders the the representatives uh, congressmen you know county officials whatever and and try to get them to understand what the financial impact was so that those people had 
had more of a say with the federal employees. Yes, uh, and that is one of the, you know, and I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying because the, uh, and one of the things where we made a lot of inroads in the Indian National Forest uh, with some of their management points was under travel management, uh, when Inyo released their original plan, they had an estimated uh, 5,000 miles of uh, travel routes on the Inyo National Forest. With their plan, they were only going to keep and maintain less than 300 miles of routes. Jesus. By the time uh, myself and several other people in the Inyo area, and this was businesses, uh, we got together in the final travel management plan that uh, they submitted and that we, everybody agreed on. And this was the uh, Sierra Club, the Friends of Inyo, who was affiliated with the Center for Biological Diversity. And all. You know, we came across, uh, came up with uh, about 26, 2,700 miles of, of routes that would be open with an additional uh, almost 1,000 a little over a thousand miles of routes that would be kind of held in reserve and essentially looked at for their impact and maybe, and with the opportunity to open them up with some uh, road maintenance or trail maintenance uh, assistance over the coming years. Okay. So this was a point where it, it was getting the local businesses in there to really stress what the economic impact would be if they close this down to the uh, motorized recreation community. There are a lot of people that they really wanted to have the, uh, the hikers and the, you know, the non-impact sports in there, but we showed them that, uh, Hey, you get a hiker come in there with, uh, you know, with $20 in their pocket and a backpack and they'll leave with a back empty backpack and still have their $20 in by the time they leave the area. Correct. But don't spend your, any money. your four wheel drive, your, uh, and your hunters and the fishermen, they will be there for some time. They're going to be up by gas. They're going to buy fuel. Uh, they're going to spend the money in the area. And yeah, that's, uh, where, because, a lot of the, a lot of those local businesses helped win the win the support from the Forest Service to, you know, keep a lot of those roads open and so. Yeah, I know that 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 was you know, getting the county involved, El Dorado County involved with the Rubicon, was huge. Um, when they you know to have that that backing, um. Right. One of the things that always drove me nuts and why I kind of walked away from all of that was I thought that we needed to fight the way we were being fought. And that was always, you know, real aggressive with threats of lawsuits. Most of the time, you know, the government was like, okay, you know, we don't want to be sued by the center of, you know, the center of biological diversity, or, or the Sierra Club, or any of these other, um, you know, green groups. It was more like, okay, we'll just we'll just bend to them, so that we don't get sued. And then the off roaders and the, 
you know, all of us, anybody else that that had something besides your foot, pedestrian, I call it, um, you know, took it in the shorts. You know, we 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 had to give. You know, we ended up giving it up. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a if that's a fair assessment, but it just always seemed like there was a lot of well, okay, you know, if you give us this, we'll we'll you know we'll we'll go ahead and and not fight you over that kind of thing. And yeah, it's always been uh, it's always been a problem, and I've always felt that uh, lawsuits are a last resort. And if you end up in the lawsuit, you you're you're in a crapshoot, and the house is controlling the loaded dice. Right. Uh, you know, it's just it's not a good position to be in. Uh, there's no quick answer, and lawsuits typically will take three to four to five years in to to uh, work them out. Uh, you know, a good example of that is uh, look at snowmobile access to Yellowstone Park. Uh, that snowmobile access was began in, uh, and ended up in lawsuits in the uh, mid 1990s. And it was almost what was it, 15, it was over 15 years before final decision came out of the courts, which you know, basically opened up in a limited access uh, snowmobiling into Yellowstone Park. So, you know, lawsuits are not the answer. They're sometimes necessary. And the place that we really need to uh, build up is in the... Uh, uh, legislative side with the uh, federal lawmakers when you're dealing with uh, the terminology and with the laws that govern uh, the federal grounds and the federal lands and also look ver- and work very closely with the state where you have uh, state lands that have, uh, you know, where the state can come up and rule and make their own decisions. So uh, it's a it's something where it all, but it all boils down to the administrative executive branches of the government that, Im, that implement uh, poorly worded laws. And this is where <laughs> your good relationship with the, uh, the Forest Service land managers, BLM and Fish and Wildlife, you can sometimes win a lot of good points on there uh, if you are friends with the people on the ground that have to interpret the laws. Right. That makes okay. sense. That makes sense. And yeah. and coming from the the enthusiast side, and and I'll say you know on the extreme side of that, um, it it always felt like like we didn't have a chance, you might say, and I I don't know if that's a fair assessment, um, but it always just seemed like there was there was never, and I don't know if it was a communication thing or that that. That maybe some of us that were, you know, more on the extreme side, just quit paying attention. Is why we didn't feel like we were being, like, being heard or or whatever. But, you know, well, and a little bit of uh, a little bit of history tossed in here. Okay, is back in the 1920s, there was a group that first thought about the idea of protecting public lands 
And that group is now known as the Wilderness Society. The Wilderness Society was the driving force to create the Wilderness Act, which was not signed into law until, what, 1964? Right. And then it took several years for the Wilderness Act to really be implemented or determined what it really means and how it's going to be enacted on the ground. Uh, by the time this happens, you have the Wilderness Society, the uh, Sierra Club, and all these other kinds of, you know, extreme conservationist organizations spinning up and and moving forward and organizing everything they had and everything they want to, uh, you know, protect the land, protect the resources. But here you had the recreationists, the enthusiasts, the common person on the ground was getting shut out right and left with no effort behind uh, organization. And it wasn't until uh, Ed Waldheim with, uh, you know, the California Off-Road Vehicle Association and, the, you know, Ed Dunkley and some others with the, the California Four-Wheel Drive Association, some of these other groups started spinning up and started doing some organizing that we started to get, you know, a, a small group of people in tune to what was going on. And it's it's been a tough fight ever since just to try and play catch up. And that's what we've been doing, you know, just playing catch up. Uh, you know, it's, it, you know, and how do you, uh, how do you win when you're playing catch up and uh, you're not well funded? You don't have the glitzy advertising or the, uh, you know, the, the big support that the uh, conservationists have uh, come up with. And if you really look at a lot of the Willis acts and these bills that are put forward that hammer the hell out of the recreational enthusiasts, they're highly supported by East coast representatives or, you know, congressional people that uh, probably have never seen or been to the areas that they're, voting to close off. Yeah, and most of their funding is coming from Absolutely. from from the large um populated in you know densely populated area, you know, um centers, yeah. large cities and uh yeah, that that don't that have no idea, have never been out there, never fished, never hunted, never seen a redwood tree, never been out in the desert. Yeah, and uh you know, it's it's an easy sell in uh, downtown. <clears throat> it's an easy sell in downtown uh, New York City to uh, get somebody to donate to save these magnificent, beautiful trees that they're shown glowing pictures of. When all they see is just dirty buildings and trashy streets. Yeah, and they don't realize that that what the fi- pictures that they're being showed of of devastation by off roaders or or motorcyclists or, um, you know, the, the bicyclists and mountain bikers or even the equestrian groups, you know, they're, they don't understand that that's such a small, small area. Yeah. And a lot of those, uh, derogatory pictures have uh, been proven to be doctored, uh, pictures that are in that. So it's uh, very, you know, selectively edited. Yeah. It's that aver- it's that whole advertising yeah. mentality all being being run by I think it's just lawyer firms that are that just found a cash cow. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. And uh, you know, it's uh, so like I said, it's it's been a it's been a fight in order to get people organized and uh, get the businesses to realize that. Uh, yeah, Tony, you make some great parts, but if you don't have a place or people don't have a place to uh, buy and use your parts, uh, they're soon fall out of favor of, uh, you know, spending this little extra pocket money they have for these high cost parts. And so, yeah, Tony Pellegrino and Chen Rides have been great supporters. Uh, a lot of others, uh, uh, you know, race line wheels and some of these other, you know, terrific supporters, metal cloak have uh, been a big help over the years in order, you know, to help fund and help get the organization going and, and get the word out. So, because if people don't use their their vehicles on the weekends to get out, they're not going to be spending the parts to either fix them or to to build them up the way they want to. So all that aftermarket, you know, has a chance of uh, you know diminished returns. You might say it has diminishing returns. But I was, and I recall, I, I uh, don't recall the gentleman's name, but he was with Daystar. And we had in a conversation in a meeting one day, he flat out stated that uh, about 20, less than 25% of Daystar's products ever see off-road use. Most of them are the dress products that go on uh, on the show and shine vehicles and the daily drivers that people just want to look good. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's the case, but, you know, that's... uh... Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I see, you know, more and more enthusiasts getting in into, you know, once they get that vehicle dressed up, then they start looking at where to go. Yes. And, you know, one thing, uh, it, like I said, you know, living in Southern California and uh, being heavily involved in the off-road community out of San Diego area, uh, you know, I would see the vehicles uh uh, being driven and also see them out of, uh, you know, the Tierra del Sol Desert Safari and other places out in the desert throughout there. And, you know, you can see, well, these, a lot of these vehicles have been taken care of and there's a lot of work, a lot of money going into them. But a lot of times you really didn't, didn't see that many of them being driven around town. When I get out here to Middle Tennessee and throughout this area here, and you will see a, I see a lot of Jeeps on the roads on a regular basis. And a lot of them have uh, the running 35s, 37-inch tires, nice lift kits, really good-looking vehicles. And I started looking around and said, well, okay, what kind of clubs are out here? What's going on? And I find there are a number of clubs out here and some big clubs. And there are quite a few uh, you know, four-wheeling areas that people go to. And... Uh, you know, I've been working or, you know, conversations with some people that are building up an OHV area with uh, Tennessee funding just about uh, 40 miles south of me here in uh, uh, Tennessee. So it's, uh, it's something that there are people that are building the rigs, they're buying the bling, they're putting them on. But for everyone you see, not that they're not all going out onto the out being used like they should be. So right, and I think the farther, I truly think the farther east you go, from the from say California, and you start moving east, 
especially once you get into the Rockies where, or after the Rockies, where you don't have the public lands and everything becomes private, that you have a lot less, you have a lot less enthusiasts that are actually using their, their vehicles, you know, on more of the extreme side. But you also right. have less that understand what what we're losing in the West, and that's the that's the difficult part is to get them to understand what we are losing and what we stand to lose. And yes, you may have wind rock, you may have land between the lakes, or you know some of these other places, Maryland, uh, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you may have those areas, but. Uh, those are all points that are at risk of being shut down any time because some of that is uh, reclaimed mining land or it is a potential uh, future mining operations in there. You know, it's not really public land. It is land that is being set aside for a recreation right now because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not private land. So yeah, it's open, but, yeah, but private land—it's not private land under you know individual private ownerships. It's under private land by because there's somewhat of a corporate ownership, and that corporate ownership is deemed as well. It's okay for us to manage it this way for the time being, in order to use the land, make a profit. Uh, but being able to expand it and uh, really go full bore on a lot of things, and to combine. Uh, a fishing and hunting opportunities with four wheel drive opportunities is, uh, yeah, those are limited. Right. No, I agree. No, but if you want boating, boy, there's a boats all over the place. Yeah. Especially because of that, the Tennessee, the Tennessee, um, the TV, Tennessee yeah. Valley authority with the, uh, the size of lakes and number of lakes they have around here. And yeah, I've, I've been out to a couple of TVA, uh, places and lakes here and you know for the you know, weekends and i uh, you know it's a lot of fun on the water uh but you're seeing the same thing there that the four wheelers have is there's a lot of restrictions on the um uh, you know uh, type of boat boats that can be run and where you can run them all the no wake zones being set up so yeah it's uh right. challenges all over Yes, it is. And I, and I think it boils down to, well, I think it boils down to education. It's the people getting, I don't know, getting the people that aren't, aren't enthusiasts or or owners or even the ones that are, but aren't necessarily enthusiasts to understand that, you know, what, what they're doing going to a private park in Pennsylvania or a somebody that has a land lease out there um, or, you know, anywhere else where they, there's not real public lands like out West that as we lose more and more and more of this, that the opportunities for the future, not only for us that are, that are of age doing it now, but for our kids or grandkids or whatever is going to become more and more limited. Um, you know, without, without their involvement. Right. And it's, uh, and the economy and the strength of the economy has a lot to do with it. Uh, 
with what it is. And you, and when you look at an enthusiast, well, what is an enthusiast? Because is it the guy that, uh, you know, he just goes out once or twice a month or is it the one that goes out every other day? Uh, you know, it's, it, it's tough to really make that point. And when you, you know, when you have a, a family and kids and you've got two incomes trying to, uh, you know, house the, you know, put, you know, pay for the housing, put food on the table. Uh, there's limited time to really, you know, do much other than, uh, take care of the daily needs. So the education is a big part of it and being able to, uh, broach th- that topic of what people stand to lose with, with people that are so mindset with trying to carry on daily life and get out on a weekend, uh, that's kind of tough to do because they don't understand what is really what's there. They just want to go out, want to have that availability, but they really don't understand the implications that they do with decisions they make and what they buy, who they vote for, how it's going to impact their opportunity. So yeah, education on the political side and education on uh, what their actions are going to uh, impact the environment or create a uh, situation where people, you know, show a negative light. So, right. You know, and God, it's just, it's such a hard, it, it's such a hard concept for so many to grasp if they've not experienced that, uh, that opportunity to be out on public lands yeah. And be able to just to drive. And, you know, in California, all your public lands, except for, you know, pretty much Johnson Valley or, you know, is is so highly regulated that, uh, you know, you can go down this dirt road, but, you know, you better have GPS that shows that this area that you're bordering is, you know, wilderness and you can't go down the other dirt road. Yeah. You know, and uh, luckily Nevada is more wide open, um, but you know the rest of the states are all are all getting throttled down, and it's uh, it's a shame. It really is. Yeah, and uh, that's where we, you know, see. I'm I'm still highly involved with the Blue Ribbon Coalition, right, and with programs that they're doing, uh, and right now we're. Looking at uh, Utah and specifically the uh, in central Utah from uh, Moab west over to the Canyonlands area, you Bryce Canyon, Zion, and that, and all that big uh, desert area out there. The BLM now wants to do a massive closures out there, uh, just because they don't want to fight a lawsuit from the uh, Utah Wilderness. You know, it's what. So, yeah, the Utah, uh, so the Utah Wilderness Alliance, and we're slowly making inroads to uh, show that uh, hey, uh, BLM, uh, these roads that you say are not there, actually they do exist on the ground. See, these maps are here, and oh, by the way, you can drive out here. Well, maybe there's been a little bit of sand blown over, but you can see the tracks into it, and a hundred yards up there, you can see the tracks coming out of that. So the roads are there, and we're st- slowly making some uh, progress there. But 
Yeah, Arizona, you know, similar type things. The Forest Service wants to close a lot uh, up in uh, the tunnel with the Mogollon Rim area, and that uh, there were, you know, tough fights there. And even down in uh, in southern uh, area around Tucson, a lot of problems there. Uh, currently in in discussions with the National Park Service where they want to begin limiting the number of people going into Toro Weep Overlook over the Grand Canyon. And the Forest Service or the Park Service wants to say, oh, well, our management plan lets us have only 20 people a day. And this includes the, you know, filling up the, which I think there's 10 dispersed camping sites your primitive camping area there. So you have 10 there that you can only have uh, 10 other people, but so you're now putting a major impact because they claim there's uh, 30 to 40 vehicles a day into that area. Hmm. Interesting. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's things like this where the agencies are, they're still not completely receptive to it. They're, for the agencies, it's easier for them to close roads to manage it than it is to have roads open where they might have to have somebody go out and physically drive a road in order to see if anybody is stranded or in trouble in these areas. So, yeah, I I had a BLM recreational planner that I dealt with out of the Carson City office. She has been retired for many years now so i can i can talk about her i i won't say her name but she told me we were sitting out there i was running valley off-road racing association at the time and also had opened up moon rocks for competitions and so you know i had permits going all over you know that area and probably like seven active permits going for races and rock crawls and they, uh, she goes, well, you know, it's it's a lot harder and a lot more work for us to say no than it is to say yes. And I, <laughs> I looked at her, and I, I was like speechless. My jaw dropped, and I was like, okay, explain to me how that works. If you, if I put in an application for, for a permit, and you say, oh, don't even bother, I'm going to tell you no. You know, so don't so don't even bother putting that application in for that new a new race course within the same area that I've already that I've already got permitted, or you know this rock crawling area. You know, you're going to have to do all this stuff to make it happen. You know, don't even bother. How is that no so much more difficult than saying yes? You know, you, you guys you guys charge me cost recovery back then to do everything. And how is that, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't understand the concept that she was trying to put forward. Of course she couldn't, she couldn't give me a valid argument except <laughs> to say that, you know, Oh yeah, it costs it. It's a lot harder for us to say no. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up the topic or permits and oh, that's always been a problem with, uh, that I've, Based and argued uh, countless times with uh, <clears throat> with BLM in Southern California, <clears throat> and I've been on the winning side of a lot of the arguments, and 
I know first couple of years that Dave Cole uh, with the with his big adventure on getting permits uh, for his rock rolling there. Uh, for King of the Hammers, yep. He had the King of the Hammers, but he, uh, he almost didn't get it one year. And I know I got in and argued and helped him, and they, uh, BLM granted the permit, and I had somebody come back, you know, catch me, you know, somebody from BLM catch me later, and they said, why do you want them to have that permit? I said, I said why not? I mean, you know, you've got an opportunity to do your cost recovery to help builders, and they bring people in that, uh, and there's a good venue for them to put everybody in under control. So, and Dave is a consummate salesman, and uh, he built the uh, built that event up with uh, you know good staff to support him. And over the years, it has thrived, and BLM has. Uh, has realized it's not really a problem to him now. It's it, it actually helps them and helps the image. Yeah, it's a cash cow for him too. Right. You know they. Uh, that's one of the things with the cost recovery. Uh, people listening to this, if you don't know what cost recovery is, it's uh, when you get a permit with Bureau of Land Management. Your permit is, you know, say it's two hundred and fifty dollars for a standard permit to do an act to do something like a an event if your event permitting the time that they spend on it doesn't go over 50 hours right at the 50 hour mark that as soon as it hit 50 hours then you have to start paying additionally for every hour from 0 up to whatever it is that they put into it. Now you have no way to know how much they actually spend or how much time they spend on it or what they're actually charging you for cost recovery. And yep. what I what I mean by that is like you know what their their law enforcement is going what they're going to charge you for law enforcement to be at your event if you have if they've deemed you have to have law enforcement. Now you can bring in sheriffs and pay the sheriffs to be in there and go okay so then we don't need your BLM because we have sheriffs. And they're like, "Oh no, 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 no. You still are going to have this many people. You're going to have to have this many Bureau of Land Management law enforcement officers as well." Yep. And if we have to bring them from out of the district, then you have to pay for their travel, their per diem, their stay, you know, for every single hour that they put right. into that event. And you have no way to control those hours. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, one time it, in, out of the Tucson office, we were trying to get uh, an air, a, a permit for a rock crawling competition that was actually outside of Apache Junction in the Florence area, but that's controlled by the the Florence or the Tucson office. And they said, well, you're going to have to have an owl study. And I'm like, all right, um, tell me about this owl study. And they said, okay, well, it's, uh, you know, what our guys, what our, what we do is we hire this, this company that goes out and they call and then count owls. I'm like, so when was the last time an owl was seen in this area? Well, one, we've never seen any owls in the area, but 
its prime habitat if the owls decide to move in. And I'm like, so right now there's not been any owls. When was the last time you you guys looked? Oh, well, you know, we'd look periodically. They wouldn't give me an exact time. And I said, so what you're going to do is you're going to charge me to pay somebody to go out there for whatever period of time that, that you guys deem is the right amount of time and call owls into an area where there's no owls existing now. And if an owl comes into that area, then I don't get a permit. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, how in the hell does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I I hear you. I've, I've heard that story uh, <laughs> happen in other places. And in fact, I can tell a related story where San Diego four-wheelers do their superstition mountain run in the, down the Utah Desert in Southern California. Right. It's a neat area. Uh, and uh, one year, for their permit, BLM was saying, oh, well, we have to have an archaeological study, an archaeological survey of the area. <laughs> and, okay, you have a staff archaeologist, get her out there and take a look at the area. I said, well, no, our staff archaeologist is very is uh, booked up, and we just don't have time. You have to contract somebody. I said, what? Why us? Because, and this is us working with uh, Richard Jackson with San Diego Port with this time, and we were in a meeting with the BLM manager out of the uh, central office, and he was telling me this. And I looked at him and said, Tom, what you talking about is extortion. And I said, you want us to actually find some money to hire somebody to do your job. And he kind of sheepishly looked at me and said, well, yeah, but I said, all right, I'll tell you what, we'll do that. So within a, within a month, Richard and I had the contacts together. We had funding for an archaeological survey to be done. And it was with a, the uh, consultant that BLM certified and BLM approved. And BLM, who was saying, oh, well, we don't have the money to pay for it. Guess what? They paid for it anyway. <laughs> but this is where they paid for it because they were funding the Gateway Development Agent uh, Grouping, which was trying to you know, build the businesses and the business aspects and the four-wheel drive and the sand buggy aspects within the uh, Glamis Dunes and all this. So it was brought into the county and this gateway development that they're the ones that used the BLM money to fund it. <laughs> so they got their uh, permit and they've had it every year since. Wow. <laughs> and. The uh, local managers in the different offices, uh, I know, uh, for a while, Cal 4 Wheel was, had a lot of problems out of uh, the Ridgecrest Field Office getting their uh, their permit done for an event there. And finally, that manager retired. The next guy that came in, uh, you know, was finally he got a permit through one year and came back the next year. And, and I, I got ready to go in and have a sit-down meeting with him and and he said, oh, you know, why are you coming? It's, it's pointless for you to come in here every year and do this. I said, I said yeah. I said, 
how about would you do this now? Well, it'll be good for five years. Sold. <laughs> so I got them a five-year permit for that event. Then all of a sudden, other places throughout uh, the area began to, uh, you know, Southern California, even over in Arizona, began issuing multi-year permits. But it was, it didn't, it was, it didn't, it was not something that happened immediately. It was something that took some changes in the personnel managers there in order to create the, you know, that type of foresight in order to make that kind of decision that, no, let's just go ahead with a standard thing. We'll do a review point one year and then bing, 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 which you come back through, you know, five years later and we'll see what's changed and what we have to change. Right. So, and for I, the clubs, go ahead. For the clubs, this really helped them out, really gave them a lot of stability on their ability to plan for and manage and conduct the events. Correct. And and we do, we have the same thing down in Farmington, uh, down in Chokecherry Canyon, the Glade area for Brown Springs for our rock crawls. And we they, they gave us a, a five-year permit. Um, I had the same thing in with my with Vora, the Valley Off-Road Racing Association up there in northern Nevada through the Carson City office. And then I I did the same thing with Moon Rocks. So I was yeah. given one event a year for five years. After I'd paid for the NEPA study, I paid for the ARC a lot, you know, the whole, all the, all the different studies that had, had to be done. And back then, you know, I'm talking the early 2000s, it was like, Fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, but I looked at it as a as a five year investment in u- in using that that area. Right. Well, I used it the first year. I let Arca use it the second year. That was Ranch Pratt, who you know, and then yeah. BLM came in and and took the permit away. And they said, "Well, you guys don't have enough. You haven't had enough volunteers to control parking." And I'm like, "Okay." Um, how do we tell the locals that are coming to this event that they have to, we have to control parking. You're only allowed to park here when the whole state is an open area and they can park anywhere they want any other day. And they look at my volunteers and say, you know, screw you. I'm going to park over here because I'm allowed to park here on Monday. I'm allowed to park here on Thursday. Why can't I park there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? You know, yeah. and and you know they right rightfully so. So I came back to BLM and I said, well, then you guys need to have your Leos that are on site that you require us to enforce that because as private citizens we can't enforce that if that's you know if it's all the rest of the year it's wide open. Yep. And they wouldn't do that, and they pulled the permit. And, of course, there was no refunds. So I talked about yep. suing them. You know, I just made that threat. I said, well, you know, this is this is perfect grounds for a lawsuit. I've put all this money in the investment into it, and then you guys just come up with an arbitrary reason that we can't continue this after you've already collected the money and done the studies and, you know, whatever, um, you know, and, and paying that cost recovery and all that stuff. And so – you know, because I couldn't, you know, it wasn't me hiring the people to do the studies. BLM was doing them, but I just had to pay for it. Right. So then, uh, 
they came after me on the the desert racing side on Vora and found a reason. I mean, they worked hard to find a reason to pull my five-year permits. And what it was is that uh, there was a bundle of like 12 stakes, wooden stakes that have arrows attached for our racers to know where to go. And we had this kid that went out on his UTV. He was, uh, you know, he was special needs. Um, I told him, just go up the first two miles up to the beginning of the canyon in the Urington area and then come back. Well, he kept riding. And what he would do is he'd he'd get, you know, a bundle of stakes that he could manage. And then once he couldn't manage them, he would just set them down on the side of the road, on the side of the the race course. Well, yeah. that was fine. We went and found him, you know, when he didn't come back when he was supposed to. And we found him a few hours later and he was out there and, you know, he was disorientated, didn't know where he was at, of course. And so we picked up the stakes along the way and we got it all cleaned up. Well, unbeknownst to us, he had gone partway down a paved road from a road crossing and dropped off a, a bundle of stakes, 12 of them with arrows in the bar ditch. Well, I never drove the paved road because I'm on the racetrack. I'm cleaning up stuff that, you know, from years before, you know, rims and tires and stuff that's not even race related, but that I know that needs to be cleaned up. Well, they saw the, somebody called it in or the, the recreational planner, she had seen the, uh, the photos or she'd taken photos of these 12 wood stakes and then sat on it for three week or for thirty days, and then charged me with littering, pulled my permit, and at that point it was like a thousand dollar deposit that we had on the five year permit, and yeah. they took the that as a as a uh, penalty, and then got rid of my permits, and I had to re- do a permit for every single race, five races a year. Hmm. Needless to say, I was a little upset. <laughs> oh yeah, I I remember some of that arguments and discussions, and uh, uh, that was a point in time. If I remember right, though, the BLM had some new people came in that uh, into especially in Nevada that were pretty much anti OHV and trying to shut down the Barstow de Vegas race, or not the Barstow, the uh, Reno de Vegas. And they were also trying to close Sand Mountain. Yeah. And, you know, everything else. I mean, yeah. I think that, uh, I think the the standard BLM uniform out of the Carson City ended up changing to flower print or (laughs) tie-dye. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, what else, what else is going on? What's the hot topics right now? Well, the hot topics right now are, uh, you know, Utah is the biggest thing right now. And like we talked about earlier, education, trying to get out a educational message of, uh, you know, how your actions, unbeknownst to you, may impact negatively the uh, how recreation is perceived. Uh, but uh, a lot of it is uh, it's back into a kind of a travel management type concept of trying to figure out, yes, these are existing roads. Yes, they've been here. 
and they should continue. Well, no, they don't have 30 or 40 vehicles a day going through them, but yeah, they do require, maybe they require a high maintenance vehicle to, or, you know, high clearance in there, but uh, they still are important asset for people. And, you know, this is the standard kind of thing that's uh, still going on, ongoing and getting people to believe or understand that uh, they can be part of the solution is if they're part of an organized group that is active in maintaining the lands and in relationships with uh, their land managers. And we're seeing a lot of success with clubs out of uh, Pacific Northwest and a lot in California. And there's a growing uh, point where people are being more and more involved with, uh, you know, keeping their, their forest routes and their favorite routes open. So, we're seeing a lot of positive things, uh, but it's a slow but sure deal. The COVID issues have, of the lockdowns the past couple of years, have really screwed up everything and, and changed the dynamics and the type of discussion. You know, the ongoing inflation issues with the high cost of fuel is, you know, starting to impact people. And, you know, it's a matter of trying to gear up and say, all right. Let's not lose any ground. Let's try and at least maintain the ground. Let's defend the ground that we have and uh, start looking towards the future. We know that any changes in the future are going to have to be congressionally or legislatively managed changes. And it's a matter of making sure we get uh, recreation-friendly representatives uh, elected to Congress and the Senate to – support us. Right. And one of the things that I want to tell our listeners is that, you know, all you guys on the on the East Coast or the Midwest that do not have, you don't even know what Bureau, Bureau of Land Management is, okay? Um, when we're talking about BLM, we're not talking about what's in the news right now as BLM, but we're talking about the Bureau of Land Management. It's a government agency, and it's, uh, they're not open for the most part, to recreate, to motorized recreation of any kind. So, yeah. so even though you you don't live in an area that has that land, it's extremely important to all of us if you ever want to come out and wheel Moab, wheel Sand Hollow, wheel Johnson Valley, come up to the Rubicon, come to all these places that that you hear about or see about in the magazines that are in the West, if you ever want to plan a vacation someday, you need to help these organizations out. And an organization like Blue Ribbon Coalition that steps outside of a state boundary, um, you know, Corva, you know, the Cal 4 wheel drive, um, you know, some of these state agencies, they don't really do a lot outside of the state. Because that's where their concentration is. Um, yeah. But if you ever want to go, like to 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 visit Pismo, and drive on the beach, and there, you know, I mean, yeah, Texas, we get to drive on the beaches, but there, you can't drive on the sand dunes. Well, if you ever want to drive on the sand dunes along the beach, Pismo is a great place to do that. But we're losing it, and yeah. without the without the financial aid to help fight that, you know, it's it's nearly impossible. So. All of our all of our Eastern listeners, talk to your clubs, talk to your locals. I mean, there's Jeep clubs in in Texas that are thousands strong, 
and all they do is go to one or two local parks and, uh, you know, look beyond that. Look what's happening nationwide and understand that, you know, if you ever want a vacation with your Jeep and you want to come West and see the stuff that's, uh, that, you know, has been around forever, um, and still be able to drive it, we need your help. Yeah, and uh, and one one big thing in the East Coast of here side, the eastern side of the states that we're finding is uh, State Senator Mark Meadows up in West Virginia has pulled together a good coalition. Uh, so that West Virginia is now developing a uh, four wheel drive a system of four wheel drive trails, as you know, with uh, county and state lands uh, support. And a lot of this is some of this branches off the Hatfield McCoy trail system and some other points with linkages. So there's even, uh, you know, some East West, uh, trail systems building through, uh, West Virginia and into Kentucky and, and that where you've got this overlanding opportunity coming up where you can go almost from coast to coast, uh, on a dirt road. So, but it, we need everybody to understand it. It's, it doesn't come. Freedom does not come cheaply or free. You know, yes. we always say that in America, you know, that those that, that have preceded us and fought our wars are what keep us free. Well, you know, we still need that. The war is just a little different. Yeah. So. It's uh we need your involvement, uh, your, your support, whether it be, you know, financial support, moral support, uh, you know, God, it's, it's, it's so important to, uh, look and understand of what, how your actions will affect everything. And, uh, and if you ever dream about something, then help us by keeping that dream alive, by keeping these lands open. Right. So look, look to your state, look to national organizations like, uh, Blue Ribbon Coalition and, uh, and help. And by help, that's financially. Um, just a few dollars here or there, a tank of gas, um, or even a partial tank of gas, a loaf of bread, whatever, you know, whatever you can donate, um, it does go to a good cause. It goes to keeping our lands, public lands, open to the public. Yes, that's just true. And that's what we're, that's the message and what we're trying to get out and uh, get everybody doing. Everybody to thinking about there's no one right answer and you know the only the only wrong answer is to do nothing. Right. And uh I hope that everybody listens to that and, and takes it to heart. And John, I wanna say thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk to us about uh your history and also uh land use. And uh again, thank you. And thank you for being a friend for so long. Well, it's uh, it's been nice knowing you over the years, and I hope to get back out west here soon for uh, some more, uh, a little bit more time out in the deserts. Uh, you know, it's I'm getting a little bit mildewed up here in uh, Tennessee. <laughs> I understand. All right, John, thank you so much for spending the time, and uh, okay, you're you have a good one. Okay, you too. You have a good red one. All right, Bye. thank you. Bye bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, 
And let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.